Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Horse.com's Ask the Vet Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of the Horse.com. Tonight's topic is rehabbing, refeeding, and rehoming rescue horses. And it is brought to you by the Horses Welfare and Industry Newsletter, which goes out every week. You can register for that newsletter as well as our other informative newsletters at thehorse.com. We are joined tonight on this topic uh, by our experts, Dr. Lois Toll of Littleton Equine Medical Center in Colorado, and Garrett Leonard, who is director of, of the Dumb Friends League, Harmony Equine Center in Franktown, Colorado. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. So I want to start with Dr. Toll. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in working with, with rescue horses? Sure. I'm an ambulatory equine veterinarian here in Colorado, and over the last 20 years, I have worked with a variety of rescues. In um, the last two years, I've been involved with um, Harmony uh, which is a different sort of rescue, which Garrett will tell you about later on. And I am on the Colorado Unwanted Horse Alliance board. So a uh, smattering of everything. So Dr. Toll, this is kind of a very specialized area of interest. Uh, what drew you to helping rescue horses and helping the organizations and the people who are trying to to help rescue horses? I think it's important that you give back to uh, help those who don't have a voice. And so uh, I think that there's somebody from our part of the industry has something um, that they all need and I would like to help. And Garrett, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your your role with Harmony and how you got involved in rescuing horses? Sure. Um, well, I'm the director here um, at the Harmony Equine Center. Uh, we are a law enforcement facility. So all the horses that we, we actually get in our facility have been seized by law enforcement for abuse and neglect. And then we take them, rehabilitate them, uh, put them in a training program, and then adopt them back out. And there's, you know, you don't really real, realize the need that's out there until you're involved with um, an organization like the Dumb Friends League, where, you know, we built this facility specific for horses that that are abused and neglected. And just in the three years that we've been in operation here, we've had over 500 horses come through our program in just three years. And that's just the state of Colorado. Uh, we don't take horses from other states. Right now, we're, we serve the entire state of Colorado. And uh, the need is so great. Um, but I think once you get involved with it, you want to do everything you can to try to, to try to help. You know, Dr. Toll and myself, you know, we're just, we, we love horses and um, love what horses bring, not only to your family, but uh, for companionship and those types of things. And, and there's such a great need that... Um, where there's a need, you got to go and try to solve the problem. And uh, so we're, we try one horse at a time to try to solve the problem. I think it's estimated that in the state of Colorado, there's over 5,000 unwanted horses alone in the state of Colorado. And um, Dr. Toll can talk a little bit more about that with her relationship with the Colorado Unwanted Horse Alliance. But that's a lot of horses. 
Um, and that's a lot of horses that, that need help, that need to be uh, rescued, that need to be put in a situation where they can thrive and flourish. And uh, so that's how kind of got involved. Got involved just because there was such a great need and, and wanted to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And you, you mentioned that, that you love horses, and I think it's fair to assume that everyone who's listening in uh, this evening feels the same way about horses. I hope that everyone who's listening will take a chance or take some time to send in questions while we're discussing this topic. I'm hoping that we can all help get some information out there that can help uh, individual horses that, that need a little extra helping hand. We at The Horse have gathered up some resources, so while you're listening, you're welcome to take a look at those. Just don't close out of the browser that you're currently in. If you do that, uh, you will stop the broadcast and have to, to join, rejoin us to listen. Uh, but if you go to thehorse.com slash 34908, you'll find our top 10 resources that can help rescue horses. And that goes from refeeding to rehoming uh, these animals. So let's go ahead and get started with the questions that were submitted ahead of time. And we'll uh, wait for your questions to come in live. I want to start uh, with you, Garrett, and ask you to define what a rescue horse is. Well, I guess uh, for me, a rescued horse is a horse that's been freed from, you know, from violence or danger or neglect, uh, being unwanted or any evil that somebody would want to to put on to an equine. And you mentioned unwanted horses, and that's a, another term that is often used. Dr. Toll, can you tell us a little bit about what an unwanted horse is? The definition that we use for unwanted horses is uh, those whose current owners no longer want them because they are old, injured, sick, sick or unmanageable, or fail to meet the owner's expectations. And so... There are uh, there are unwanted horses that are out there that are not necessarily starving, but are in a dangerous situation, and uh, we try to keep track of all of them. Doctor Toll, our uh, question that that is next is from Kim uh, in Michigan. And Kim wants to know what the first and most important thing you should do as soon as you acquire a rescued horse. I, I, I think the first thing you do is get it into a safe place and then make sure that it has enough and then start addressing its uh, nutritional needs. Uh, most of the things that we see most of these horses that haven't had enough to eat somewhere. But the biggest thing is to make sure that it's someplace safe. And that's the, and so hopefully when you've got it home, you've already done that. But uh, depending on the horse, you are going to need to make sure that it's comfortable where it is. You want it to be uh, probably where it can see some other horse, but not so close to it that um, they can be sharing uh, diseases and then um, slowly start introducing feet uh, okay. for me. And a physical exam, once it's home and safe, if you can get someone to give it a physical exam and help you decide if there's anything special you need to be addressing, that would be the next thing that I would be doing. 
So, Dr. Toll, when you are called in to evaluate a horse and, and do that initial physical exam, what are you looking at as a vet? Uh, you First, you're going to make sure uh, you, a physical exam where you're listening to its heart and lungs, uh, if it's possible, evaluating its teeth, looking at its skin, does it is it does it have a fever? Um, does it have a wound? Um, those are probably the biggest things that you're looking at um, when you get started. Uh, uh, some of these horses, it depends a little bit on where you're standing. Um, if you are at Harmony, you may not actually be able to touch the horse that is standing there. At other places, it may be uh, somebody's uh, old friend who's um, looking for a new home, and they're a lot more tractable. So when we are reporting on welfare-related cases at the horse, we often come across uh, discussions of body score condition of, of horses that have been seized. Can you tell the audience a little bit about the body scoring system and what that tells us about the horses? When the scale that we generally use is the Heineke scale, which is a uh, uh, one to nine. And so uh Body score one horse is uh, extremely emaciated, and you'll be able to see its entire skeleton. Uh, there's just no fat anywhere. Um, uh, uh, two is very thin, and so you'll start to see a little bit of, there'll be a little bit more fat on it over its um, ribs and its tail head, but it's still, uh, you can still see every bone in its body. Um, a three its withers are are prominent, um, and you can probably see part of its um, pelvis, but you uh, it'll have some fat on its neck. Most horses that we see are fours and fives of uh, your average horse, and hopefully, and most of these horses are not nines, which are um, have a gutter down their backs. But those horses are at risk too. I Garrett. When you're taking horses in at Harmony, what is your intake procedure and your initial evaluation? What's involved in that initial evaluation when a horse comes to your center? Um, well, when, when horses get here, um, you know, the, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to run them through our chute system. Uh, in our chute system, we have a scale. Uh, the first thing that, that uh, they do is go stand on that scale, no matter if a horse hasn't been touched or if a horse's halter broke, every every horse that comes on this property is going to go on that scale. That's going to give us a baseline. That's going to be our baseline. We know that that's the lightest that they should ever be while they're in our care. So we're going to get a weight on them, and then we're going to number and tag them. So if you're familiar with the BLM program, you know they use neck tags and tag them, and we do the same thing here. That way we have an identification tag on the horse. If we can generally, you know, even if a horse is wild, um, and never been handled. Generally, we can get them calm enough in the chutes um, to be able to, to number and tag them. Uh, we actually have a hydraulic squeeze chute, so if we have to, we can move them up to this to the squeeze chute to hold them 
Um, so if there's some medical treatment that we need to do in a shoot on a horse that we can't touch, we can actually just do it all in the, in the, in the squeeze shoot itself. So once they go through the, the shoot system, get, we get a weight on them, get a height on them. Um, a, a veterinarian will always do an intake exam and that exam is going to, we're going to check their eyes. We're going to check their lungs. We're going to do everything we can to try to, to check their respirator, respiratory rate. We're going to see if there's any, uh, disease that is very prominent. If they've got a snotty nose, if they've got, you know, gook around their eyes or whatever the case is, we're going to do whatever we have to medically to make sure that we try to quarantine that horse off from the rest of the herd. Um, so after the intake exam is done, um, we will set a feeding protocol for each horse. Um, as they go through the shoots, um, the veterinarian may determine that a horse has a really bad mouth and, uh, we'll put that on notes. We won't start them on a mash diet right away. We'll start them on a, on a grass diet to start, um, for a few days. So at least we know that they've got food in their stomachs before we introduce any sort of a mash type of a diet. So that'll be all set by a veterinarian, um, at the time of intake. Um, then we're going to separate them into different bins, depending on, you know, seems like there's a lot of people out there that think they need to have a stallion um, on their property as well as mares and all that. So we'll separate the stallions um, into separate pens and then mares into different groups. And so we'll just kind of take them through the whole process as far as what horses are going to live where. Um, and then from that, then they're going to go straight to feed. Um, so once that evaluation, we'll, we'll know if there's something medically we need to treat. Um, as a law enforcement facility, all of those horses that come in on a court hold and every horse that comes in is on a court hold, they will also get an additional red tag put on them so that we know that there is something that is required by law enforcement for that particular horse. So we were, what we'll do is we'll weigh those horses every single week. Um, our scales are certified through the Department of Agriculture um, so we can get an accurate reading. Um, and then all that data is used in court um, to help you know, the case that this horse hadn't been fed. Um, so we don't, we won't do anything invasive unless we need to. So we're not going to draw blood on them unless there's clinical signs that there's some major health issues. We're not going to vaccinate. We're not going to deworm them. Uh, we won't do anything invasive if we don't have to. Uh, we're going to put lice powder on all the horses just in case we have a lot of horses that have come in with lice in the past. So we're going to try to control that. Um, if we have a tick problem, you know, if we get horses out of the mountains here and, and we get ticks and stuff like that, we may vaccinate them, uh, or we, excuse me, we, we, we may deworm them, um, because we know that the ivermectin will help kill the ticks, but generally we don't want, when they come to us, their body condition scores of one. And I noticed on your website that you actually have the body condition scoring chart on your website. I think that's a great resource for people to, to know what they're looking at, especially if they feel like they need to report um, somebody because that chart will really help uh, people understand when they come, but when they come to us, they're usually body condition scores of one. So when Dr. Tolo explained, that means they're extremely emaciated, uh, very thin. And uh, so generally we try not to do anything invasive because we don't want to, you know, basically injure the horse in any way by doing so. And, Dr. Toll, you mentioned earlier that you'd want the horse to be able to maybe see other horses just to make it feel comfortable, uh, but that you would have it away from other horses for biosecurity reasons. What kind of biosecurity uh, 
protocols do you recommend when people are either taking in rescues at a rescue facility or if there's someone who maybe has purchased a horse at an auction and brought it to their property and don't necessarily know the history, the health history of that animal? If you can keep it uh, separated for uh, a couple of weeks, that is usually enough time to know whether or not it's harboring something. And that means um, probably uh, 20 feet away from something to keep the, if they've got a a respiratory virus, um, that's probably enough to do that. I would also not put them in the, once you got through that part, I would not introduce them to the rest of the herd until um, you figured out what the internal parasites were on that horse and the external ones. It's um, not emaciated horses seem to be more susceptible to the external parasites um, and be in a place where you can treat them. And uh, generally it's months before we deworm them because you want them, you don't want to kill them with a dewormer. But if you have an idea what you can tell from a, a, uh, fecal exam, what their parasite load is, that can help you uh, decide what you're going to use on those guys. Because the, um, the young horses are, are more uh, likely to have ascarids, and um, some of those strong gels would be a bigger problem for them. So we, uh, when, you're, when you are comfortable with their uh, parasite load, then you can put them in with their... Um, other horses, but I wait until uh, I was comfortable with that before I uh, moved them in with uh, more friends. So, are these horses with low body condition scores and with the stress of moving and kind of their life stress until maybe they've shown up on your property, are they more likely to carry infectious diseases or to contract infectious diseases even when maybe exposed to horses at like a boarding facility? I think uh, I've actually been fairly impressed at how few really uh, um, sick horses there. I mean, not like a respiratory disease thing. And uh, we've had a, uh, there's there's some horses that like if they've come off of a facility, they may all have um, strangles. But most of the time, uh, they're not um, uh, they're not as sick as you think that they they would have a right to be, but I do think that they're more susceptible to things when they hit a bigger population. And so you are also keeping them from getting sick from something that might be going through your rest of your herd. And Garrett, do you have any experiences with, with quarantines and biosecurity issues with managing horses as they come in? Yeah, we do. You know, again, that's why it's important for us to do our intake exams when they first get here. So that if we do have, excuse me, if we do have a case of strangles or something in a particular herd, we can isolate that herd somewhere uh, on a different location at our property. Uh, We have areas here that we can isolate um, for that particular disease. Um, But everything that we do, we actually set everything. Our barns are no closer than 75 feet apart um, at any given point. Um, so that if there's a problem at our adoption barn, it doesn't go down to the, our training barn or it doesn't reach over to our intake. So we actually have what we call three hot zones. So we have the intake, the training, and adoption. 
And if we have any disease running through either any of the three of those, we can isolate those groups because um, we don't. What we don't want to do is take a disease from our intake facility and take it over to our adoption barn. Um, so we do every. We do a lot of uh, safety measures to make sure that you know we power wash all of our equipment on a, on a, you know twice a week. Disinfect all of our equipment. Disinfect all of our tools after every use. Disinfect all of our buckets after every use. Disinfect all of our wheelbarrows after every use. And yes, it takes a little bit more time and a little bit more energy. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to cross-contaminate. And so our isolation, uh, our intake barn, we everything is going to sit over at our intake barn for a minimum of two weeks. That gives us two weeks to evaluate them, to check their weights over a period of time, just to make sure that they're gaining weight. If we have horses that come in that we didn't see that there was a real health issue, but they're losing weight, then we're going to go back and reevaluate. We're going to reevaluate feeding protocols. We're going to reevaluate. Maybe we need to draw blood on this group. Uh, we've had, you know, we've had people that have claimed when horses have been seized, well, this horse has cancer and it's been sick. And so in those particular cases, you know, we're going to draw blood um, just to make sure and do a, a chemistry profile and make sure that they aren't carrying disease that the owners claim. And generally what we, what we have found in our history here is a lot of the things that people say they are, they're just not feeding their horses. They're just not, they're just not taking care of the basics, food and water. Um, they all have excuses. Um, but we don't believe it or not. And like Dr. Toll said, we actually haven't seen a lot of horses that come in sick. Um, they're skinny, but we haven't run into a lot of respiratory problems. We haven't run into a lot of other diseases that run through, but we're going to isolate every herd separate from each other anyway even if we don't see the, the clinical signs of it. So if we've got a group of horses at intake right now and we get a group, uh, say another 10 or 20 horses later tonight, they're still going to be separated by distance so they can't touch each other. So we're going to just keep them separated. Okay. Our next question is for Dr. Toll, and it came in from S. Uh, S wants to know how much permanent damage to the digestive tract can be found in rescue horses. Do you often see gastric ulcers and what can we do to help heal the digestive tract of a rescued horse? Again, I go back to there there are very few things that um, just plain food doesn't fix for these horses. And I would say that I, I feel in both the populations at at Harmony, which are more, uh, those horses have not been handled very much. And then at the rescues where it's a more traditional horse that we don't see very many, um, not as, not, I don't feel like we see very many ulcers. And so the biggest thing is just feeding them and, and meeting their nutritional needs, which, uh, I don't know why they don't have ulcers because you think they might, but it, that isn't something that uh, we identify on a regular basis. Okay. Our next question is from our live audience. And Garrett, I'm going to ask you this one. It has to do with behavior. Renee in Georgia wants to know if horses who are starved but are okay now because of rehabbing can get past food aggression issues, or do you see food aggression issues in horses that have been starved? Uh, how do you best help a horse who's been starved become better adjusted uh, once they're receiving uh, adequate care? Well, if you were to, if you were to take, um, 
you were to take my four horses that have never been starved and put them in all one pin together, there is always going to be a dominant horse. Um, I think I'm not so sure that food aggression is something that, that I have a real understanding of. It's not something that I've seen with horses here. I've seen just normal pecking order, uh, where, you know, horses establish who's the leader and who's not going to be. And so generally what, what we'll do is if we do have a horse that's going to be dominant, not want to share out of the same food pen, we'll just separate their food. So we'll just put one on one side of the pen and one on the other side of the pen. That to me seems to be the best way to handle the food aggression. But again, I'm not sure, sure it's food aggression like it is in a dog or anything like that as much as it is. It's just the way that they establish pecking order. And uh, so if you have horses together and you have one horse that's very dominant and wants to bully every other horse out of it, just do everything you can to, to separate, you know, your food. And the horses know how to move away from each other. And uh, they'll just move to the next pile and they can all just move in, move in a big circle. I've seen it where it's like one big circle. They just want one moves, the next one moves, the next one moves, and they just keep moving piles. Um, so just, just try not to feed horses together if you have one that's, that's obviously going to be more aggressive and try to and never leave the feeder and never let anybody else eat. That to me is just herd management. Okay. Our next question is for Dr. Toll and it's from Nancy in Oregon. And Nancy says that she understands that you should feed small amounts of hay several times a day to a horse that's been previously starved. She says, what, a, what about weighing the hay and then putting it in a slow feeder hay net, the small two by two inch hole type slow feeder. Uh, would that be similar uh, to feeding several meals throughout the day and, or are slow consistent small meals uh, throughout the day, a better option? Do you, do you recommend slow feeders for these horses, Dr. Toll? I, I like slow feeders and I guess I think part of that's going to depend on at what stage this horse is. I think in usually in 10 days to two weeks after you've gotten, um, you've been refeeding a horse, you can get it on to a, uh, what we would consider a more normal um, feeding program. So if you, uh, a slow, so twice a day for a horse like that, after you've gotten them worked up to that, I think is a reasonable thing to do. I do like the slow feeders so they have something to um, work on for a while because I think it keeps them busier. But if it was a, I would be thinking if it was a horse that I had just gotten and I was worrying about it, I would probably be feeding it at the four to six times a day, depending on where you were. But you can um, use the slow feeders to help you spread that out. And Garrett, your feeding program at Harmony varies a little bit from from some standard recommendations in the industry. What is your experience with feeding starved horses? Um, well, you know, we've um, when when we started out, uh, we started with uh, following the AAEP guidelines of you know slow feeding, and that's you know five small meals a day, and as we've developed and you know after 500 horses you know we've we've made some modifications to our feeding program and so what we actually do is we actually be free uh we just we actually let horses eat as much as they want we, we're going to put grass hay in front of them all day long but we're just going to give them some free choice 
feed. And what we what we found um, in in our program is horses are not like a dog or a cat. If 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 a if a dog is starving to death, a dog will eat until it gets sick. Um, they'll just keep gorging themselves until they they can't take it anymore. Horses, what we found is horses don't do that. Horses can regulate their own intake. One, they can't eat as fast as a, a dog or cat, so they're going to have to chew their hay and take their time. And with horses being graze animals and knowing that they're going to, they want to eat 18 hours a day and they want to sleep two hours and 43 minutes a day and they want to lay down 18 minutes a day or whatever the statistics show, we're going to let that, we're going to give them that option. Uh, so they have feed in front of them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we actually did a study uh, with Colorado State University in Fort Collins here in Colorado. And we took a random sample of 118 horses that we had. And at that time, we still had, you know, we still had, had 400 horses through our program. But we just did a sample, and it was very, it wasn't like we just hand-selected this horse, this horse, this horse to make up the study. We took a random sample of 118 horses, and we went through body weight with them. And so we, because we keep accurate weights on everything and because we weigh everything every week, um, what we were able to determine was weight gain. And then how fast can we get a horse from a body condition score of one to two, two to three, three to four, you know, and so on. And so with horses that have been in our program, we've seen some, some incredible weight gains early on. Um, so in the first 30 days, I, I think the average horse out of that sample, the average, the average weight was 40 pounds the first month. And that's keeping in mind that some were bigger horses and some were minis and some were donkeys and all that kind of stuff. So for us, we just changed how we did it for the purpose of, we saw great strides with the horses. We saw, we saw them getting stronger, faster. We saw them getting healthier, faster, um, and knock on wood. You know, in out of the 500 and something horses that we've had through here, we've actually only had two horses that have colicked on us. Uh, one was a uh, 12-year-old stallion that actually had a 720 twist in the um after just being here a couple of days. But that horse, I don't think that was a feeding issue as much as it was a stress issue because uh, he was extremely stressed out. The second one was a horse actually that we had that had ulcers. Um, and that, that particular horse, uh, you know, we sent to Dr. Toll's clinic, uh, Littleton Large, and we were able to correct, um, you know, the ulcers, which then put her back to a healthy situation. Um, and so we're not finding that colic has been an issue for us um, in the way that we're feeding. And I'm not sure in the AAP guidelines how many horses colic based on that. But for us, we feed good quality hay and, and uh you know, part of our study that we did is, you know, we made sure that they had mineral blocks, so they were getting the extra calcium, magnesium, and all the different other things that they needed, um, so that to supplement for what the hay was lacking. And uh, so we found that pre-feeding horses in that study, and I think CSU at some point is going to publish that paper that it is a safe alternative to the AEP, AEP guidelines. Um, that if horses have food in front of them. 24 hours a day, and it's good hay. It can't be moldy. You know, it's got to be good. It's got to be good quality. Um, but you're going to see incredible results. 
So Garrett, I just want to uh, clarify when you're talking about free feeding the horses, you, you mentioned hay, um, but are you talking about just hay or are you talking about free feeding anything else? Just grass hay. Okay. That's it. No alfalfa, no grains, nothing like that. Just free feeding quality grass hay. Okay. And Dr. Toll, this has obviously worked really well for, for Harmony. Would it work for every horse that you see that, that needs to be refed? I really believe in the, the way that they do that at Harmony. I think that there are some older horses that you get that don't, uh, and this is from my experience with other rescues, that don't have the teeth to be able to manage that um, hay. And then you need to start adding their nutrition in um, a little more gradually. And that's why the alfalfa works well. And uh, I... Um, there's a woman here in Denver who uh, is a miracle worker with those old horses, and her uh, name is Denny Abbott, and she um, she has a beet pulp formula that she uses with those horses where um, she starts out with them doing a cup a day, a cup um, four times a day soaked, um, and she does that with the uh, uh, you know, three times the water with a beet pulp, or you can do shreds that are a little less labor intensive and add that in um, and get those horses back. Um, and she'll put a little something in it to make it more palatable, either a little sweet feeders and senior. Uh, the biggest thing that you have to be careful of as you are receiving these horses is that uh, their livers and kidneys are not really up to handling a lot of fat and a lot of protein. And so with the grass hay is nice because there's a lot of roughage that goes with that, but you need to be really careful that you don't um, overdo some of those things. And some of those older horses too, I've got seen horses get in trouble where people have seen the old horses and bought them since senior and then, you know, read the back of the bag and put them up to 10 pounds of senior a day and they're just not up to handling that and they get into trouble with their feet. And then the other part of it is that sometimes they, their liver and kidneys are not processing that very well. And then those horses are, um, have trouble, uh, gaining and maintaining weight. So I'm, I'm a little, uh, with the older horses, uh, I, I, I still go slow with some of those older horses, although I absolutely agree with Garrett that the that nice grass hay um, does a wonderful thing for them. And then that's going to be partly what you have available to you, I think, um, regionally. Sometimes, you know, sometimes what you get is alfalfa, and when it's a drought here in Colorado, what you get is good grass hay. <laughs> so um, you have to sort of work around your... Um, uh, circumstances, but there's a, there, so I have confidence in, I have confidence in beet pulp, I have confidence in alfalfa, and I have confidence in grass hay, as long as you are, um, sort of respectful of what each one of them offer as you go. And we have a question from our live audience. Chelsea in Kentucky wants to know if dental problems are common in horses that are malnourished or might have been starved, and what types of special dental care may these horses require? Dr. Toll? I think uh, regularly these horses will have uh, 
dental things that go with their age. And so a lot of these horses, if you're not feeding them, you're probably not floating their teeth. And so uh, I think Garrett would probably tell you that they, of all of the horses that have come through Harmony and stayed at Harmony, uh, I think there's been one that hasn't been floated, but uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the, you need, uh, you absolutely need to pay attention to that once you've got their um, body condition um, stabilized, but it's not going to be, it's usually points or missing teeth or something, the same thing that you would see in a, uh, your regular population. And Garrett, what has your experience been with dental work in rescue horses? Uh, just about every horse that's, that's come through our program has needed their teeth loaded. Um, I, I definitely think that there's a, uh, a big correlation between dental problems um, and horses being malnourished. Um, if a horse can't chew properly, it can't eat properly. You know, even horses that we had a horse that came in that was that was in a pasture, and it was a 30-year-old horse. And it was in a pasture, and it was a green pasture, and it was a bunch of great grass. And uh, the horse was a body condition score of one. And if you could have scored her less than a one, she, she would have got it. Um, and she was standing in plush green pastures. And um, so when, when she was removed and, and brought to our facility, um, we floated her teeth right away. Um, because she, her mouth was in such bad shape. And as a 30-year-old horse, in six months, um, under the fee, uh, free-fed grass hay program, and then she was also a horse that because she had age on her and did, did, didn't have a great mouth, she went to a mash diet as well, and she put on over 300 pounds um, in six months, um, just strictly by floating her teeth and then making sure that she had food that she could eat. Um, so I think dental problems are, are a huge, huge problem, um, with people. I don't think people really understand, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't do a lot of floating teeth. It was just kind of something that was just kind of lost in having a horse. Um, and I think now, and, and certainly Dr. Toll probably would know better than I would, but dental work has become such a important part of taking care of your horse. And if you're not floating your horse's teeth, at least having a veterinarian look at them every year, um, you're doing your horse an injustice. You won't eat if your mouth hurts. If you can't chew, you're not you, you're not going to be able to, to chew your food. And so, why would it be any different for a horse? We you know we we take care of our dog's teeth. We take care of our teeth. We take care of our kids' teeth. Um, why would we not take care of a horse's horse's mouth as well? And I think that that's a huge thing that. If we've had 500 horses here and we've had to float teeth on 500 horses, it tells you that that's one of the problems in our community, that they don't understand how important floating teeth is. And and I, w- I, would, agree. I would agree with everything that Garrett has said. I guess my take on that question was that it's not, that they are, it's, it's an issue for um, uh horses that have been starved, but it's probably partly why they're starved and not because they're starved, that their teeth are an issue. Okay. Is that, is that clear? 
Yeah, that, that does make sense. Um, Dr. Toll, our next question is for you. It's from Rebecca in Nebraska, and she wants to know what you should do if you're feeding a rescue horse, but they aren't gaining weight or they continue to lose weight. So that horse, I would be, uh, that would be a horse that I would be considering doing some blood work on to see what their kidneys and livers are doing. I, uh, uh, if they are not processing the food that you are giving them, then, and, uh, by being starved, you, um, you make their liver be less functional. And so if you are not, if you, uh, are, if you are feeding them a lot of fat and a lot of, um, branch chain carbohydrates, which is what you get in alfalfa or grain, their liver can't handle that, and that is, um, you're, given, you're, you're not feeding them something they can use. And so those horses, those horses really like being on the grass hay. So if that horse, I would be looking at that horse, I would be wanting to know if its liver is working, I and I... Uh, would be checking that horse's teeth because, like what Garrett said, there a lot of these horses will be, if somebody has been neglecting them, um, neglecting their teeth is near the top of that list, and I would be checking for parasites and see if that uh, meets. Uh, and uh, I would expect to find an answer in, in one of those um, areas. Okay. Um, our next question is from our live audience, and Garrett, I'm going to give this one to you. It's from Allison in Middleburg, Virginia, and Allison has adopted two rescue horses uh, back in June, and they had been abandoned and were starving. They are in good physical condition now, and she's focusing on behavioral training with them. So the one is a 16-year-old ex-race horse uh, that seems to have been abused. How long do you think it will take him to get past his periodic fear uh, and defensiveness when being handled? Um, well, you know, from a, from a training standpoint, um, and, and I think it's, I think it's with, with, with pretty much all horses, the, the more you can show a horse, the, the more that it gets used to different things in its environment, the more miles, so to speak, that a, that a horse has, the better they are. And, you know, horses that have been abused and, and beaten, you know, they're, they're tough in that they don't have a reason to trust, trust people. Um, I would, you know, just, you gotta be, well, first off, you gotta be patient. Um, because if you, if you try to rush, you try to get too much out of a horse, um, you're going, you're going to do things wrong. You're going to create other problems. Um, so I would go slow, um, teach them, you know, just teach them the fundamentals of being caught and, being led around and as you're leading them around, show them different things. I, I, I'm a big, big fan of training. I, I think that if you have anybody that has a rescue horse, um, it needs training and tra- it doesn't need necessarily professional training, you know, with, a you know, 120 days or six months a, with a professional trainer. When I say training, it needs to just experience different things. It needs to, you know, we, we have an obstacle course here. Uh, we take horses over bridges. We take them over tarps. We hang noodles from the ceiling. They got to walk through flags. They've got to walk around trees. They've got to, 
see different things. They got to cross the creek. They've, there's just a lot of different things. And, and once you get them past the fear of those things, um, then everything else doesn't seem to be such a big deal. Now you can't force a horse to, you know, cross a creek if it doesn't want to, you can't force a horse to load the trailer if it doesn't want to. And that's where it's just patience. It takes time. If you, if you take your time teaching a horse how to load into the trailer, it will load the rest of its life. You, you, you beat a horse into a trailer, you force a horse into a trailer, you do things like that, that horse is going to resent that trailer its entire life. So knowing that we don't know the history on why this particular horse, what it, what, how it got abused, you just kind of got to monitor the things that it's comfortable with. Really focus on the things that it's good at, not the things that it's not good at right now. So if it's, if he's hard to catch, learn just to, to walk up with him without a halter. You know, walk up to him, pet him on the shoulder, back up. Walk to him, pet him on the on the forehead, back away. Keep in mind that every time you move closer to a horse, you're adding more pressure. So sometimes you have to take the pressure off. That's why you can stand on one side of the pen and a horse will stand quietly. And then as you move to that horse, that horse runs away. Well, find out where that pressure zone is. So if, you, if you're moving to, towards him, and he's halfway, you're halfway across the pen, and you can see that the horse is starting to panic. Take a half step back, and then just wait there. Just be patient. And then when the horse, you know, kind of drops its head, relaxes a little bit, maybe maybe gums at you a little bit, then take another step forward. Maybe take two steps forward. Then if the ears go up and the, the body movement, the posture changes, then take another step back. Everything with a horse is, is pressure. So know when to give pressure and then know when to take pressure away. And so with that particular horse, if you're having trouble just even approaching him, approach him, approach him slowly, but don't approach him like a grizzly bear. Uh, there's, there's one thing or, or, or approach him like a mountain lion where you're kind of creeping up. Uh, our horses here that we have here, we're going to walk up to our horses now because they need to get used to that. Now, when you're first starting them, you can't just walk up to them, but you also can't attack them. So if, if your body language is in attack mode, that horse is going to respond. If you kind of creep and you kind of hide your hide your halter behind your back, and I see a lot of people do that, and they kind of kind of hide it so that the horse can't see it, and then they kind of sneak up towards the horse and they kind of crawl up to him. All you all you are is is a predator, and since they're prey animals, their first instinct is to always want to flee, and so all you're doing is teaching that horse how to be afraid. You're not teaching them to respect you. So I would I will always walk up to a horse like. I'm going to approach him, and if I see that he's going to panic, I'm going to take the pressure off. I'm going to add a little pressure, take some pressure off. And it's just a, it's a constant game that you have to play with them of knowing when to give and when to take away pressure. And, Garrett, you have a training program at Harmony, and you have, have said that you've had horses that can't you can't touch and mm-hmm. also older horses that have obviously been, you know, family or horses at some point. Do you start every working with every horse as if it was a blank slate or how do you create a program for the individual horses to get them well, so that they're useful? Yeah. Er, well, certainly every horse is different and, um, we do get, uh, we do get a lot of horses in that have never been handled. Um, whether horses that people had in their backyard that were raised there and, or if they were handled, they were handled incorrectly. Um, so again, they have no reason to like us. They have no reason to trust us. 
Um, we pretty much, in our training program, everything I just said about pressure and release, that is our training program. So we'll, we'll isolate um, horses um, in our round pen. So we'll work them in a round pen. Um, we'll actually work them off of horseback as well. Um, so we do a lot of, of training of, of horses that can't be touched with other horses. So we'll ask um, another horse to move that horse around in the round pen as opposed to a person to start. Because, again, in the round pen, it's safer on a horse than it is on foot sometimes when you get something that's really aggressive. Or generally, if you're on another horse that has confidence, you can ask that horse to do what, what you want. So we're going to teach that horse how to buddy up with another horse. Once it becomes a buddy with another horse, anything that we ask that horse to do, it's not, it's not panicked because it's already seen it. They've already seen a rider above them, being that they're on horseback. They've already experienced being touched off of a horseback. Um, and so we do a lot of different things like that, but we're going to, we're going to pretty much start them all the same. We, we don't go in with the anticipation of, boy, uh, we hope we get by this horse. Our anticipation is we believe that we can get by this horse. We believe that we can train this horse and every horse that comes to our program, we're going to give a fair shot too. We're going to make sure that we treat them all the same. Yes. There's minor tweaks in it because again, you know, a horse that you can't get within 30 feet of our success is if tomorrow we get within 25 feet of them. Our success is if we can get 20 feet in from him. Our success is when we, when we can finally get to the point that we can get to that shoulder and we can touch him. Um, so we're, we are always adding pressure and always taking it off. And because horses are herd um, dynamic, again, that's where us using horses to help train horses is very beneficial because they already understand when a horse is the leader, you move. When a horse stops and that horse is calm, there's a calming presence for that other horse as well. Um, so for us, training is training is everything. Um, I unfortunately, rescues don't have the resources to have a training program. A lot of times, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And I think if you're ever going to make a horse valuable, it has to be trained. I think there's always a place for a trained horse um, because if a horse that can do something is useful to somebody. And so all of our horses are going to go through our training program. Um, some will be ridden, some won't. Again, we'll determine that based on age, based on temperament, based on a, a lot of different factors. We don't want to go into all those factors. But we're not, if a 30-year-old, we have a 30-year-old horse that comes in, we're not, going to, we're not going to ask that 30-year-old horse to go under saddle. That doesn't mean that it can't, but we're not going to ask it to. But what we're going to do is we're going to teach it how to be quiet, friendly, easy to catch, and it can be a companion horse for somebody. So not everything has to be rideable uh, for us. They do have to be halter broke, pick up their feet, stand for the farrier. If they don't do that, and of course, load in the trailer, if they can't do those basic things, then they're not, they're not going to be adopted uh, until they can. Because if you can't take a horse home and you can't trim its feet, all it's going to do is go back into a neglectful situation. So we're going to always work the basic ground stuff before we ever start them on saddle. Okay. Uh, our next question is for Dr. Toll, and it's from Kathy in Virginia. And Kathy says she recently acquired an, an off-the-track thoroughbred rescue. He seemed to be in good health, but he has the worst hooves she's ever seen on a five-year-old horse. She says they're cracking, they're shaly, they're brittle. She said she's had him shot in the front, and he's barefoot behind, and he gets orchard grass, good feed, and a hoof supplement. What else can she do uh, to help this horse's feet improve? It's, uh, 
um, it's the rule of three with feet. And so it's going to be um, three shoeings before she sees a huge difference in this horse uh, because it's just got to grow out. Um, it's got to grow out a foot that she can use. The, the, if they're that shaley, keeping up with the probably the most important thing that she's doing is the um, hoof supplement to make sure that it's got the um, right uh, building blocks for making a new foot. But um, that uh, the topical things don't really work very well, and uh, just feeding that horse from the inside is going to be the best. And so I think um, uh, keeping it shod and being patient is probably the only thing that's going to make a big difference for that one. Okay. And Garrett, with when it comes to their feet, you we've talked about the uh, these horses often having... Uh, teeth issues because people maybe weren't able to afford to take care for their teeth. Does the same thing happen with their hoof care? Yeah, their their feet aren't taken care of, you know, and like Dr. Cole said, for us, it's all about balance. Um, You know, if you get a horse that comes in with elf shoes or slippers or whatever terms you want to use for them, it it just takes time. You know, you're not going to get instant results when it comes to trimming horses. It takes time. If a horse's foot is really unbalanced, um, it's going to take time to correct that. If um, they're club-footed, you know, you got to trim them a little bit different. And I think that's where having a professional farrier is so important. You know, and don't wait. Don't wait 12 weeks. Don't wait 14 weeks. I mean, have them trimmed every six to eight weeks. Um, eight being as long out as I would if they come in with really bad feet. Um, again, but uh, you get a horse that you can't pick up their feet, you need to start training feet right away. Um, because you've got to be able to maintain their feet. That's If their feet go bad, you've got no horse underneath you. And Dr. Tolgarrett mentioned kind of the elf slipper look that, that horses get, and I don't know if everyone listening is familiar with, with what horses' feet look like when they aren't um, cared for, but I've, I've seen horses like that where the toes curled up, um, looks like it should have bells at the tip because it's so curled up. Can those horses... Um, recuperate from that lack of care? Can that horse, is there a possibility for a horse that has been that neglected uh, to come back and be a serviceably, serviceably sound horse? I always worry, I always worry if their hoof wall is that distorted because you wonder a little bit about what's going on inside them. Uh, if they have been like that for a really long time, and the bone underneath their cotton bone has been affected with all of that, that may um, may make it so they won't ever uh, be a useful horse. But there are, um, if there are no changes to the cotton bone, it is amazing how well those horses can do if you just trim them. And uh, so if we start with, um, t- uh, trying to correct it, and um, because you have to wait for some of it grow- to grow out, it's not. Uh, again, factor three may not see it all right away, but um, it some of those horses do fine. Um, there are plenty of horses if they have been like that for years um, that they will have changes on their coffin bone into their. Uh, joints because they've been in an abnormal angle for so long that you you won't get them comfortable. But it's uh, worth a try. Okay. 
We have a question for you, Dr. Toll, from our live audience. Now, Nancy's in Minnesota, and she wants to know about deworming starved horses. She says she's particularly worried about parasite load and stress on on horses that, that haven't been fed. With the rescue horses she works with, she usually gives a panic or a a power pack, a panicure power pack once they've stabilized a, a bit. Is that the, the correct route for deworming uh, these horses? Um, that is a great place to start. I think that uh, I think the most important thing is to be sure that they are uh, that their body can uh, handle having the parasites die. And so generally we wait, uh, let's try to wait a month or so. Um, and sometimes it's even two, we try to get to them to a body score of three before we do that. And, um, and then I would, uh, uh, depends a little bit on the age of those guys. Sometimes they're, um, uh, you have to worry about too big of a die-off on some of those babies, so you'd have to sort of chip away at it a little bit. But um, I, I think the Panicure is a good product. So um, it, those, uh, the babies, uh, I'm, I might be doing a, a people on them to see exactly what you are up against, but uh, for an adult horse, I think that sounds like a great place to start uh, once they're uh, uh, healthy enough to uh, tolerate. Um, Garrett, we have a question for you from Barb in Wisconsin, and Barb needs advice on the best way to find the right new home for the horses she rescues. She said that the horses have been through so much that she feels they deserve a safe and secure future. What re- what advice do you have for Barb? Um. Well, I can tell you what we do, and that is, if somebody's interested in one of the horses, uh, we will actually sit down with them, uh, the trainer here will sit down with them and talk to them, talk to them about what they want to use the horse for. Um, The trainer here knows, of course, what the horse is capable of. And we want to make sure that it's a good fit from that standpoint of, if you're looking for a dressage horse, but what what you're looking at is a trail horse, we're going to make sure that you understand that that horse is not going to be capable of doing what it is that you want it to do. So, and then we're going to make sure that it's a good fit. So they're going to actually work with our trainer here to make sure that everything that they're saying, their skill level matches the skill level of the horse. Or if they have a trainer lined up, that's going to work with them and work with the horse. So we have a, we have a pretty extensive interview process. And then once the interview process is done, and then once the trainer decides that, yeah, this is a good fit and, the, and the, the potential adopter agrees that they would like to take the horse, what we do is then we send one of our investigators to do a site inspection. Uh, so we're going to go visit their homes and we're going to go see where the horse is going to live. If it's a boarding facility, we will still send an investigator to a boarding facility just to see exactly what, what it is that that horse is going to be living in. It's going to be living in a stall. Is it going to be living in a run? Is it going to be living in a pasture? Is it going to be living with other horses? What exactly is their plan? Um, Because we can certainly help educate them on what the best plan is for that particular horse that we have knowledge of. So we know a a horse, say, is a stall weaver, and a a doctor might really like the horse, but they're going to board it in in a stall somewhere. We're going to be able to 
at least let them know, okay, this horse is not going to be good in this environment, and these are the reasons why. And so if you're going to adopt the horse, then we want to make sure that you understand that this horse needs to be living in a pen with a shelter. Um, it needs to be living in a different circumstance than living in a stall because the horse is going to be miserable. Um, so a lot of it for us is just education, spending time talking with them, and spending the time making sure that it's a good fit. We're not trying to move horses out so fast that just the first person that comes through and looks at a horse, we say, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's get this horse adopted because we have another 50 we need to try to do something with. We would much rather make sure and be cautious in who we adopt to than we would some somebody else. Because we, we'll place 100, 120 horses a year through our program. Um, and so that's a lot of interview and it's a lot of time, but it's worth it because at the end of the day, we don't want the horse back. We don't want the horse to go through a bad situation. And we want to make sure that the horse has the best possible chance of thriving in whatever environment they're put in. Well, we have run out of time this evening. Uh, our hour is up. But before, before we leave, I want to ask each of you what the most important takeaway you would like our audience to have from our discussion tonight. And if you have any advice to them on how they could maybe reach out and, and help some horses. Uh, let's start with you, Dr. Toll. Uh, I, first off, thanks to everybody who is helping the horse and me because it's going to take all of our efforts to um, uh, address this problem. Uh, don't be afraid to feed them grass hay. And if you are not in a position to help a horse yourself, that there are um, rescues all over the place who would be great for uh either a little bit of your time or $10. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Toll. And Garrett, what, what advice or recommendations you have or parting thoughts as, as we finish tonight? Well, we certainly, you know, I think we all have the same, same dream and that's that rescues don't have to exist. The, the best day for us will be the day we go out of business because people are, are doing the right thing by these horses. Um, taking responsibility, you know, I understand that people love their horses. What I don't understand is if you love something, why would you starve it to death? Um, and so, you know, if you're, if you're listening and you're having a horse and you're having trouble and financially you're, you're not able to take care of that horse, do something different. Love that horse enough to let him go somewhere else where somebody can take care of him. Don't hold on so tight that they're going to suffer in your backyard if, you, if you're looking at adopting a rescue horse, do everything you can to make sure you work with a trainer. If you get your horses trained, your horses, you will have a better relationship with your horse. You'll spend more time with your horse. You'll do things more with your horse. If you are looking to help somebody, help somebody in your community. Get with the rescues in your community. Find the reputable ones. Find the ones that are doing something. Donate some time, whether it's three hours a week or whether it's, like Dr. Toll said, $10. Do what you can to help the people in your area help solve the unwanted horse problem. And um, it, it's a big problem, and, and uh, we know that. But together, we can make a difference. Okay. Well, thank you, 
both so much for joining us tonight to talk about this important issue. I hope that everyone listening has had uh, has gotten some information that they can take back and, and help some horses themselves. Thank you to everyone who's listened and joined us tonight, and I hope that you can join us next time for Ask the Vet Live.